right, so let's get let's get rolling. Um, so the one that says on it, rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity, underneath it, rediscovering, rethinking, and restoring, rebuilding his pattern. You might recognize that as the very first introductory message. And the only reason I included that again was just to review what the 15, uh, the 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery are. So notice that we are on number six, the kingdom of God. Okay? Everyone got that? All right, so that's all you need with that one. You can set that one aside. Tonight we're going to get started on uh, the kingdom of God, letter C, which will be on uh, hopefully for not too many weeks. But we're going to start on the idea of authority and um, we're going to talk about how that's an inescapable concept. All people put ultimate reality, uh, truth, morals, you know, they're, all people have some system for deciding what, what is reality and what is truth and what actually has ultimate authority and so forth. Okay. So we're, that's an inescapable idea is what I'm trying to say. And uh, so we're going to talk about authority in the kingdom of God. And you're, over the next few weeks, uh, I ran out of time and didn't get the outline done today. So we're going to see that um, authority in the biblical view and the kingdom of God view starts with Scripture. Actually, well, let's go back a step. The authority actually starts with God. So it's kind of interesting if you were to um, if you were to be reading a systematic theology book from an Eastern Orthodox Church or Roman Catholic Church, their first section of the systematic theology class would actually be about the nature of God and His attributes. Because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. All of Scripture comes out of who God is. So in those old uh, systems, which date back to more ancient times, they would see the ultimate source of epistemology and the ultimate source of authority and thinking and so forth as being God himself. And the Scripture was spoken by God. And so the uh, one of the... Uh, most Protestant uh, theology books start with Scripture as, as the number one section of the book and then have the number two section of the book called The Attributes of God. So it gets into a kind of one of those, uh, you know, questions like which came first, the chicken or the egg? For Christians, that's an easy question, the chicken. But for which came first, the attributes of God or, or Scripture, well, the attributes of the eternal God came first, and he spoke scripture into being. However, for us, we need to understand the attributes of God in order to be able to interpret scripture. And we need to have scripture in order to know what the attributes of God is. So it's kind of a little bit of a circular reasoning foundation. And if you actually study all thought in epistemology, you'll, know, you'll actually come begin to understand that all thought is actually based on circular reasoning, uh, which is a fallacy, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> So, um, 
we're gonna we're gonna get into a little bit uh, that scripture has to be interpreted, and uh, you know the Bible is a book, but that book has to come alive. So the early church saw that that Christ was the living word of God, the scriptures the written word of God, but Christ gave apostles to his church as the ones who interpreted the Old Testament in light of Christ and wrote the New Testament. And so ultimately authority also has to deal with the with the person of the Holy Spirit. And authority has to deal with um, the church. And so if you remember what our three delivery systems of grace that were all like the whole point of Grace Christian Fellowship is to rethink and take further uh, study of scripture and to restore the proper biblical hermeneutics to how to interpret scripture to study and encounter and take further the, uh, the 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 power and ministry and person of the holy spirit and to study and take further the ideas of the church and so in this section on the authority of uh, where authority comes from in the kingdom of god we're going to touch on all three tonight we're only going to mostly touch on things about the scripture so let's uh, start with uh, Sam Chen Poon to my right, although he's equal. We'll start with Josiah to my, or, or with uh, Jonathan to my left. And uh, let's read the uh, scriptures that are there, like starting with Roman numeral 4a, Isaiah 820 there. Sure. For the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Okay, so he read both the New American Standard, which translates the, the Hebrew word at the end, dawn, and the New King James, which translates it as no light, because it's a word picture word, and the King James uh, decided to give us more the didactic word for it, uh, whereas the New American Standard gave us more the literal word, which happens to be a word picture. Because what happens at the dawn? You know, when, we were, when we were stoners, we used to have various comedy routines, one of which was uh, like the, the, hippie, the hippie stoner weather report was that uh, toward dawn, it'll start to have scattered light followed by increasing light <laughs> until there will become full light, <laughs> you know, and uh, that was the hippy-dippy uh, weather report, <laughs> you know, like uh, dark, darkness will be followed by scattered light followed by more light till there's full, full light. And Proverbs actually says the path of the righteous is like the rising of the sun that shines brighter until the fullness of the day. And Christ is actually uh, compared to the sun. One of the reasons I like this season of Advent that we're about to enter this Sunday is that um, we're moving towards, it's interesting that Christmas is three days away from and was deliberately put by the early church close to the winter solstice because that's when the day is the darkest and the, the idea of light, of Christ coming into the world, was that it began to bring increasing light, and, af and after the birth of Christ, each day gets longer and longer, and there's, you know, so forth. And that was all done kind of intentionally. Don't the, like, Eastern Orthodox celebrate uh, 
their Christmas is you they, their birth of Christ is usually uh, a few weeks different than. Uh, yeah, the, well, it changes because they, they tend to use a uh, lunar calendar, a he, more Hebrew calendar. All right, uh, Jeff, why don't you, uh, the next three, read Psalm 1916 and then mention the translation each time. But let's, now, if anyone wants to get one out of a different translation other than those three, I, I thought those three were, were good ones. Psalm 119, 116. Some of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So what is that saying about uh, Scripture? The whole Scripture is the truth. <clears throat> Not part of Scripture, right? Mm -hmm. The sum of Scripture is the truth. Notice the New King James translates that as the entirety of your word is truth. In fact, uh, John, Luke, why don't you read the next two real quick? Okay. John 17, 17. Sanctify or no, no, Psalm 119, 160, the next two versions. Oh, okay. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That's ESV. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. New King James Version. Now, the reason the type style is just a little different is uh, I used 11 points on one line, 12 points on another, and 11 and a half so that they would all fit on one line and I wouldn't have to waste another line. Because uh, I like to cram as much in as I can. But notice that uh, uh, the one of them says ordinances, the one says rules, and the one says ju your righteous judgments. Uh, who knows what those are in scriptures? What is, what's meant by those things? God's law. Uh, no, no, not exactly. Uh, it, it pertains to God's law, though. You're, Sort of heading in the right direction. We've talked about this before a number of times. God is being holy. No, no. Um, what are the ordinances? If you read that in Psalm 119. The case laws. The case law. The hypothetical case laws. So remember that God, uh, in you know, in our teaching called eight aspects of all biblical covenants. One of them is that all covenants have laws, that is ethics. There's um, stipulations of you will be holy because I am holy. Thou shalt not commit adultery and so forth. So the most concise expression of God's laws are found in two chapters that are word for word the same, which are Exodus 20, which is the first giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Deuteronomy 5, which Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Because one of the eight aspects of all covenants is that all covenants have ceremonies of enactment or inauguration, like a wedding covenant or uh, water baptism in the Christian life, right? But all covenants also have celebration or ceremonies of celebration of renewal and uh, that's for instance in the Christian life that's the Lord's Supper we renew the very things that we do in water baptism at the Lord's Supper that's why in the early church you actually began to be admitted to the communion table after you'd gone through a catechism process and been water baptized then you were admitted to communion and not before 
So with such a crazy situation in American Christianity, we don't want to make that call for everyone. So we, like a lot of churches today, say, uh, you know, we invite you to the table if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're in good standing with some some portion of his church somewhere. All right? Okay. So in Deuteronomy, the entire book is actually the second giving of the law. It's a renewal. The entire book is, is, is rereading the entire covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai, including the Ten Commandments. But after the Ten Commandments in Exodus and in Leviticus and other places in Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are hypothetical case laws that tell us what they mean. So thou, like Leviticus 23 is uh, all case laws about what it means to keep holy the Lord's day. And it covers both the, the Sabbath and the three major festivals that Israel was called to, to uh, observe every year, which are all foreshadowings of Christ and were fulfilled in Christ and done away in Christ. Because now Christ, our true Passover, has been celebrated, has been sacrificed. The foreshadowing of the Passover lamb has come to fruition in Christ. So we don't celebrate Passover anymore, but in the, in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the true meaning of Passover, which was Christ's sinless life, his being the spotless lamb that was offered for our sins, and so forth, and his death, burial, and resurrection, right? So uh, Leviticus 18, for instance, is a whole chapter on sexual mores that all define what it means by thou shalt not commit adultery. Because um, in the Bible, the first represents the whole. So commandment one is not by accident, thou shalt have no other gods besides me. All the other nine commandments are done when you're breaking thou shalt have no other gods beside me. To break any thou shalt not steal, you're making a god out of money, or you're, you're, it's a form of idol worship. Right? To covet is idol worship, right? To commit adultery is idol worship. All, all breaking of any of the Ten Commandments are always involved breaking the first commandment. Now, the second half of the commandments, like we, who, who's our, today modern people have this wrong idea where we think that uh, the law, the, the two tablets, the first tablet had the uh, first set of commandments that Jesus summarized is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength, and, and the second set of commandments was on the right side. There, everyone has that idea, right? That's actually not true. In, in Hebrew Susan Tree Covenant, Susan, Susan, Susan T. Covenants, not tree, Susan T. Covenants, um, it's easy for me to say, uh, there was always two copies of the covenant, one for the covenant Lord and one for the covenant subjects. And that's what the two tablets were about. They were two copies of the Ten Commandments. So they were not the half the commandments on one side. That's just a modern idea that's developed that's bogus. Um, and uh, displays kind of our lack of education about Scripture in our day and age. So anyway, um, as you go through the commandments, you turn the corner at, at thou uh, to honor your father and mother, 
which authority is there's always authority in the hierarchy so that's actually a transitional commandment between the the first few that have to do with loving the lord and starts us into what it means to, to love our neighbor as ourself so the first full commandment for loving your neighbor as yourself is thou shall not murder right and all the other commandments are a type of murder uh, the reason adultery the reason adultery was a capital offense was because you were murdering the family so what the what the commandments mean are spelled out in the statutes in some translations testimonies and others and ordinances they were sort of testimonies in advance like if your ox gores your neighbor but you didn't know your ox was in the habit of goring that and that's actually where we get involuntary manslaughter versus murder two and murder one all of that comes from biblical law and it's part of the english ju jurisprudence system uh, as blackstone originally wrote it that came from the old testament do you know that in up until the 20th century jurors in america used to actually bring their bible into the jury box with them and open it up in deliberation. Just a few years ago, there was a court case thrown out because a guy referred to the Bible in the jury deliberations. But the, the Puritans would have sat in the jury box with their Bibles and would have said, which biblical laws apply to this the, the most, to this case? And they would have used the statutes and the ordinances to, 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 to decide that. So all of that's to say, where's the source of truth according to Scripture? It's in the scriptures because it comes from a God who is the truth. Uh, all right, Stevens, John 17, 17. <clears throat> Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Read, read this rest of it. NASB. NASB, the King James Version, the New King James uses sanctify them by your truth. Instead of the truth, it uses your truth. So it makes it a little more personal. There are approximately 300 small discrepancies in all the various manuscripts of Greek that are, that are available to us. That's one of them. None of them have major doctrines that fall or rise on them. And often, knowing both, both uh, versions is insightful because, you know, the... the the, the King James text that it's made from, the Greek text it's made from ad, adds a personal pronoun there. It's your truth. It's God's truth. It's not just the truth. It's not just an abstracted personal truth. All right, uh, John Bradbury, John 8, 31, 32. Okay. Read all the comments in the, in the translations. Okay. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, and you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It also says, remain in the Young's literal. Continue in NASB, KJV, and RSV. Abide in, in the ESV and NKJV. Hold to in the NIV. And continue to follow in the NET. Yeah, so interesting, the NAT says continue like the NASB and the King James and the Revised Standard Version. But instead of continue in, it says continue to follow. So the Greek word meno, uh, which I've left there, I was going to actually, I meant to have Anvesh pull up, pull up uh, 
pull up that verse in in BLB uh, Blue Letter Bible, and then and then click on the uh, King James word and read the full definition to us. We'll we'll stall on some other things in the meantime. Um, the disciples' literal New Testament actually uses "remain in." with a text note that uses continue, abide, and stay. Another word that's often translated that uh, with meno is dwell. Because it means to live in constantly. So tell me some things that, uh, first of all, what's another word for truth? Reality. Reality is my favorite alternative word. I actually take the time whenever I encounter the word true in Scripture, I always stop for a minute and think about that word and substitute reality. Because in essence, the full Bible's message, what, it, what is happening to us in, in our salvation in Christ? Bringing us into his reality. We're bringing in, he is bringing us by sanctification and maturation gradually into his view of reality. And we had what before? Our view of reality, which the Bible calls blindness. How many people have had occasion to change their opinion on a variety of subjects as you've grown in Christ? <laughs> right? My realities weren't very real. Most of us have experienced that, right? To some one degree or another. We all had lots of opinions. And everybody has them. We won't tell you the rest of that thing. Bradbury can tell you after church. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, so truth is reality. So what is Jesus saying? If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. So what would be the reverse negative of that, Jane? You know the concept we always talk about called reading the reverse negative. Sam, I'll, I'll pick on Sam. He's he's around more. Though. If it's, uh, you're not a disciple, you don't do it. Yeah, he's saying then if you don't abide in his word, meno. That word is, by the way, one of John's favorite words. It, look for the word abide in the Gospel of John and in First John. It's a word that that John uses in his writings a lot to dwell in, continue in. It's a way of life. You know, yesterday I stopped by Bob Timer's new house on my way back from my bike ride after a couple hours of vigorous pedaling. And, uh, but I just stayed for 15 minutes or so, maybe half hour, I don't know. But I wasn't gonna, I, he didn't like charge me rent because, <laughs> because I wasn't gonna abide there. I was just visiting. But what the Bible's actually talking about is kind of a, a relationship with the Word of God where you dwell in it. I love guys like when it, like if you ask, ask if you can use the restroom at John Gray's house, when you're sitting on the throne, you can read Bible verses taped to the wall all over the place. I think he doesn't do that anymore. And he used to always have them in his dashboard, you know. Uh, but what is the the bible actually says you're supposed to write these things on the doorpost of your house you know there used to be fancy jewish houses would actually inscribe scriptures on the casings and stuff you know so 
it's basically saying if you don't have a lifestyle where you dwell in God's word, then you're a false disciple, right? And you'll know what? So what would happen if you don't abide in God's word? You wouldn't know reality. And you wouldn't get set free. Right? Give us a little bit of the BLB. Like go up to start at the very top where the strongest definition is, then go down. There's like two or three definitions on the page. Right. Give us all of them. Endure three times, right? And uh, tarry. Tarry. Tarry is an old-fashioned word that we don't use much anymore. The Pentecostals used to use it a lot. They actually, because uh, Jesus t tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and that, and the King James translates that as tarry. But he says, he's basically saying, abide in the upper room until you reach. Don't yeah. go anywhere until you get the power of the Spirit. It's basically a verb form, uh, which means to stay in a given place or a state of relation. Or a state of being or yeah. a state of relationship. Right. So in other words, it, cannot, it, can, it not only refers to staying in a place, but it, remain, it, mean, it refers to staying in a condition or a state of being, or kind of a, a posture or attitude, and it has to do with staying in a relationship. You know, in a sense, in Christian community, we abide in one another, right? You know, I don't know how many times I'm going to see John Luke this week, but this is around my third time already, and it's only Tuesday, <laughs> right? Right, because that's just what we do, right? I like that. Remain as one, not to be different. All right, uh, who's the next reader? Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, the testimony that you say reviving. All right, now, notice that the word restoring or converting or reviving comes right after perfect. Almost all the translations use perfect. So that's actually an epistemological statement, right? So it's saying the law of the Lord is a standard of perfection. Right? It's the real deal. Everything else, we, we most things we encounter in this world uh, are imperfect, right? You know, I happen to have gotten on the Golden State Warriors bandwagon a few years ago. They're not doing so good so far this year. They're, they're not perfect. <laughs> so uh, the law of the Lord is perfect. And it's kind of a, a, if you think about it, it's a pretty profound statement. It's the, it's the place where perfection dwells. <laughs> And we don't know a whole lot of things in this world that are perfect, do we? Complete, lacking in nothing, without error. Right? 
Is Stephen complete, lagging in nothing in without error? No. <laughs> pretty, pretty close. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> when I was in high school, I was a legend in my own mind. All right. <laughs> um, so, uh, notice that, and also, of course, the word sure, so why is it, why are restoring, reviving? What's the, what's the relationship? What's it implying? About our soul. And it's also yeah, that it originally had a relationship, but that the soul currently is not perfect. That's the implication of the juxtaposition of the words. Like, my soul is far from perfect. In fact, I'm more like the simple, and I need to be made wise by the surety of God's word. My soul needs to be converted. <clears throat> I do like the fact that there's uh, three different words used, and good, those are pretty good English translation. My soul probably could use some reviving, some restoring, and some converting. Right? Can everybody identify with that? Right, so there's a lot more to that. I, I I really wish I I'm not. I feel like I'm shooting at the target, not quite hitting it, of how profound that verse is actually. In Psalm 19, by the way, uh, the first six verses are all about what the theologians call general revelation, and the and verses seven through ten are about the scripture, the specific revelation God has given us in His Word, and it's saying that His Word is the standard of perfection. And that's why it does things in our soul. That touches on something we're going to look at more next week. I don't know if we're going to get to this week, but we're going to talk. Maybe we're going to get there this week. I think actually we are going to get there this week. Uh, the infallibility of Scripture, which is very different than the inerrancy of Scripture. All right. So uh, someone read the next ones. The, uh, these are just three sample verses from Psalm 119. Now, does everyone know... Uh, a little bit about Psalm 119. It's a, what kind of psalm is it called? There's a term for it. it starts with an A. Don't say it. Stephen knows. Stephen can answer if everyone... You know, Anvesh? Bob, Bob, you know? No, I thought it was an oh. Acrostic. Acrostic. Okay, and what does that mean? Uh, I've been acoustic at times. <laughs> it's an ABC... Every, every group starts with a different letter of the Right. Every eight stanza group in every eight verses, it starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet going all the way through the 22 letters, is it? Yes. Yeah, of the Hebrew alphabet. So that would mean there's 176 total verses. And 22 sections of eight each, and their meditations on the importance of God's word. One of the things we recommend in our in our uh, search the scripture series, uh, the very first teaching is called the Bible on the importance of Bible study. If you find that you're underestimating Bible study in your life and you're not giving enough time to it, one among many remedies you can try is to, of course, pray that God will give you hunger for His word. But do it while you read a stanza in Psalm 22 each day. Or Psalm 119, one of the 22 stanzas, I meant to say. 
of Psalm 119. Read one every day. Now, what's nice about that, if you're faithful approximately two out of three days, you should be able to hit the whole of Psalm 119 once a month. And you can still miss nine days and still get it in once a month. Well, eight days on the 30-day months. But still, that's pretty good. So that's one thing you can do is prayerfully say, God, give me a hunger for your word, and, and read what Psalm 119 has to say about what the word of God will do in your life. It'll make wise the simple. Who could use a little more wisdom? What is biblical wisdom? Starts with the fear of God, so that's a hint. What's the fear of God? Ooh. What? It's to have what does like it mean to fear God? For him and to understand his greatness and his authority his majesty and how right it is that he be obeyed. Yeah, and that it translates to how right he is that he be obeyed, and it goes a little further. That's all correct. Say that again. Um, like understanding his glory and his majesty and just respecting him and understanding how much he deserves to be obeyed and how right it is that he is obeyed. Yeah, because our fallen hearts are so profane, it's impossible for... We have to constantly remind ourselves of, who, of his greatness, his majesty. That's why we sing songs of worship, to focus our mind more correctly on, on his attributes. But it takes his attributes one step further than that. It kind of overcomes the ability that, that there's a, a power called sin. And sin, remember how uh, Hebrews tells us, to encourage one another all the more at day by day, lest anyone be hardened by the, finish the sentence, deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful that sin has actually caused us to have a lot of misconstrued ideas. One of the, one of the hardest things, when, whenever we get Christians that, that they, they come out of other traditions into our midst, usually takes a year or two for them to start realizing that there's this kind of spirit in American Christianity that I already know everything. And people have that spirit who've not even read the Bible through once. And it's kind of like, well, I grew up in Sunday school and I went to that. I know I've been in church all my life. I know all this. Stuff. And there's a deep spirit of that. And, and there's not enough, like, there's kind of a complacency, which means to be self-satisfying. And to get people to a place where they're really like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know much. I need God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And it actually begins to realize the fear of God takes you to the place where you totally believe all the time the law of sowing and reaping. Where you realize there are consequences to loving God, seeking God, desiring God turning away from self-determination and self-advancement and self this, self that and pride and all that stuff and turning toward the seeking of God, the following of God, the loving of God, the obeying of God. There are consequences in there's what's called sanctions in coming <clears throat> thinking. There's, there's blessings that come with that. And there's inescapable curses with disallowing the things of the Lord. Right? Now, who knows that when we sin, we actually go through a process whereby we kind of somehow uh, 
convince ourselves that the passing pleasure of that ice cream is not going to have that much of a consequence. Almost everyone I've ever told that I eat a certain way or whatever tells me, oh, just won't hurt you to just do this. Just get some fudge marble or once or whatever, right? Isn't that, isn't that the counsel you get all the time? Like, oh, you can't be that strict all the time. Just, you, you know, right? You, you, kind of, uh, you kind of convince yourself that the consequences won't really hurt. You can't do sexual immorality without that. You can't do obesity or gluttony without that. You can't do procrastination without that. Like if you're supposed to like be a, you know, answering the alarm clock and getting up and studying your chemistry and you're like, well, let's just watch a movie or two first and let's, you can't procrastinate unless you just go through a process of deception. Well, I'll make it up by doing an all-nighter and then you fall asleep at three in the morning and you never get there, right? Right? <laughs> I'll only lay down for five minutes. Just five minutes. I'm studying the back of my eyelids. <laughs> yeah, the fear of the Lord is actually when you start to get into reality about the blessings and curses of, of following reality, who God and, and not. And you stop lying to yourself. You know, most people have various uh, diagnoses of who they are that come out of a lot of sources that are not the Lord. Does everybody hear that? Most people have a lot of diagnoses about who we are that don't come out of what God is saying about who we are. And a lot of people said I was a pretty good guy. <laughs> yeah. People said that about you? Yeah. Really? You <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so anyway, who was, I'm sorry, uh, Bob, read some, those three verses from Psalm 119, please. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The unfolding of your word, words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, so discuss the reverse negative. Somebody read Ephesians 1.13 first. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. All right, so what are all these open my, open my eyes, light, understanding... So what's the difference between, why, why, why would it say uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path? Isn't that the same thing? Well, a, a light to your path kind of goes out a little bit further than your feet. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a little bit <clears throat> neurotic about most things and take everything a little too far. And so on my bike, I like to ride last, you know, uh, was, it was kind of dark when I got to your house last night, right? Because it had been dark for about an hour and a half. And I, uh, I have four lights on the front of my bike, not one. <laughs> Two are lower lights that are less powerful that light up the immediate 20 or 30 feet in front of me. And two are long-term spotlights that go way down the path. <laughs> What's that? 
I have discovered that when someone's running this way or riding their bike that I have to sort of apologize because they'll be going like <laughs> I'm blinding them as they're going by the other wrong way. <laughs> Sorry, my lights are so bright. No, I'm not. <laughs> It's great when you get like little animals in the headlights way up ahead. And you, all you can see is their little eyes shining. <laughs> yeah, hoping it's not a skunk. All right. Yeah, a lamp kind of tells you. Now, why is that important? Uh, you know, my wife and I, we, uh, we sometimes uh, break the law. <clears throat> and when we're uh, hiking in Clifton Gorge and places like that, and we go way, way far deep, and then we... We on purpose get to a point where, uh-oh, we can't make it back by dark. Now my wife quit doing it because she doesn't like the dark. But I, I carry a little lamp on my backpack. And it's one of those fluorescent lights you get with like a tool set, you know, and it's got an 18-volt battery. And so when I'm walking, I have a lamp. But, um, but when it's really dark, all I can see is 10 or 15 feet. And then when you get back to the parking lot, the ranger's usually there in his car going, you know, the place closes at dark. I go, yeah, I just underestimated how long it would take to get back. <laughs> For some reason, I like walking in the dark. It's more challenging, except the one time I fell off the cliff. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Who can think of... Uh, uh, one of the New Testament writers who uses the uh, the uses the concept of light a lot. John, John uses the concept of light a lot. Mm -hmm. Jesus even says, "I, you know, well, John one, he talks about how the light came. You know, the, uh, read, read John one uh, four through nine. Right. Jesus calls himself, I am the light of the world leader, right? So when it says that the darkness did not comprehend it, and that's the New American Standard, I take it? Yeah. What are some, does anyone know some alternate translations? Overcome. Overcome is another translation. Comprehend. Overpower. Understood. Understand it. You know, because what, it's, what it, the Greek is trying to say is uh, the light dispersed the darkness, you know, when you light a match in a really, really dark room, you can see all the way across the dark room, right? It doesn't take a lot. Light is much stronger than darkness. All right, so next point, we're going to talk about these seven, eight things for the rest of the... So what we're trying to say is kingdom authority is inextricably intertwined, 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 inextricably intertwined with several biblical and inevitable megacognitive <coughs> concepts. Um, so let's talk about the words inevitable. So does everyone understand that all philosophical systems have, a, have an epistemology, and that is they have a way of deciding what is the ultimate truth, right? So let's look at the epistemology chart real quick. And on the far left, 
where it says method, name, and title, you'll see four different ideas that various thought systems have for where truth ultimately is, is attained. And uh, on the right, where it says notables, you'll, uh, the person or persons who are most associated with elevating that thought system. So the idea that truth is a matter of reason often is attributed to Plato, right? Who knows about Plato's blind cave? Anybody know the blind cave story? And it's in his book, The Republic. I really You know what's in? Uh, I haven't read about it a lot. It's basically that uh, we're in a blind cave, uh, facing deeper down into the cave, and there's a light coming from reality, and we're only experiencing the shadows of the reality. Yeah. So he thinks that, like all mankind, he's trying to do a word picture to kind of help us understand our, our journey to truth. And he's basically saying we're all as if we were living in a deep, dark cave and we're tied up and bound so that our gaze is fixed forward on the wall and there's a source of light behind us. So all we actually are seeing is the shadows because he had this idea called the forms where he thought truth, like beauty, there's some, like we see beauty in this world, but there's an ultimate ideal of beauty somewhere out there in the cosmos that every beauty we know is just a kind of a reflection of, right? So he's kind of saying all we can see is these shadows. And so the journey into actually seeing the substance of what's causing the shadows, he would say, is, is undertaken by learning to ask the right questions, discern, and, and reason correctly. So he would actually say that reason is the... Is the uh, is the way that you journey into more and more reality and see the actual, you know, like we have ideas of good government, but we ought to reason our way to like the perfect government, even though we never see it in this world, right? So if you're a Christian, uh, notice the next category says strengths and methods of the procedure and limitations. If you're a Christian, what would we see as some limitations on logic? Man's thought. What's that? Man's thought. Man's, Man's thought. thought what? You said what's our limitations on logic? Yeah. Why, why, would, uh, why would a Christian dispute Plato's idea that we can come to understand truth and reality? By the way, um, does anyone know what scholasticism was? Thomas Aquinas, Thomism. So Augustine did not, you know, Paul and Augustine rejected Plato's idea that man can find truth by, by reason, right? Does, does Romans 1, 2, and 3, think about what Romans 1, 2, and 3, does, does that seem like Paul is saying that man can find reality through his reason? No, it says that we're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, right? So the problem is this. Plato and, and humanistic philosophers are assuming that you're reasoning from a neutral, un, un, uh, un, uh, uninfluenced point of view. But what, what, what would Paul and Augustine say is influencing your point of view and your reason? 
sin. And sin is the desire to not acknowledge God, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's none who understands. No, not one. No, none seeks for God. Men profess to be wise, Romans 1, 18, and so forth. But they... Uh, you know, but they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and exchange the worship of the Creator for some form of the creation. When you're when you believe reason is the truth, what form of the creation are you worshiping? Self. Yourself, man's mind. If there's anything that's that's characteristic, I was reading a lot today of uh, reading very deeply about man's um, about family dysfunctions. And one of the things that we've come to in modern psychological world is everyone has a view of themselves that says, well, I have these various dysfunctions and problems and so forth, but then you have this problem and so forth, and so you, you actually kind of uh, dismiss everyone else's point of view and you actually think your point of view is the right one, right? That's, that's the hardest thing that we deal with when trying to get someone started in Christ is when you get started in Christ, you have to begin to realize, I don't have truth within me. Truth is in Christ, and it's in Scripture, and it's in God himself, and it's not in me. We're not, you know, we don't have a spark of the divine. We have a fallen image of God, right? So if our assumptions about reality are wrong, what will happen to our arguments? So let me give you an assignment. Write this down somewhere where you'll do it. I'm giving this to a couple people. I wonder if anyone's done it lately. There's, a, there's an article that you can Google called Love is a Fallacy by Max Schulman. You read it? You read it? I probably recommended it to you, right? Jane, because I know I gave that to you just a few couple weeks ago, right? Really funny, right? It's worth the read. If I tell, unfortunately, if we tell you what it says, it will ruin the, the humor of it. So you have to read it for yourself. Love is a Fallacy by Max Schulman. It, he was actually an author who would write articles in college newspapers back in the 50s. Com and when you read him, then compare that to an article in Wright State's Guardian. <laughs> no, that's almost sick. But uh, <laughs> what college students used to read about in the 50s compared to what they were, what's covered in the college newspaper today. So that would introduce you to the idea. What, what does anyone know what a fallacy is? Something that's not real. Uh, let's be more precise. It's a type of thinking that is unlikely to lead to truth and reality. Or... Yeah. So all in reason, you make arguments. The arguments start with assumptions, and if you assume the assumptions. Then they're called postulates or axioms. Postulates, so in, for instance, to an evolutionary person, they would assume there's no spiritual intelligent being that created everything and that matter is eternal, right? And they would assume that life came from non-life. But what are they doing? Like if you were in a court of law and, and you're the defense attorney and the uh, prosecuting attorney solicits from uh from the witness that life came from non-life what would you what would you do 
you would say objection, he's assuming facts not in evidence. Did you guys ever watch Law and Order or any of those kind of shows? <laughs> right? He's making a leap of, to a conclusion that's not been proven. That's called a fallacy. That's improper reasoning. So like when you read Christian books about other Christian perspectives, one of the things they usually do is set up their opponents' views of Arminianism or Calvinism or, or whatever, you know, dispensationalism. They'll usually set up their opponent as a straw man. What's a straw man mean? That's a type of fallacy. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're actually just given a shallow characterization of your opponent's point of view so you can knock it down easily. You're not really given a true representation of their point of view. That's why if you want to read, uh, for instance, on dispensationalism, I would actually recommend uh, Vern Poitras' book, which is against dispensationalism, but he's being very gracious and loving, trying to find common ground to help dispensationalists see. It's a very kind approach. Right? Now, what worldviews, if you remember our four worldviews, what worldviews use reason? All four of them use it, but naturalism would exalt it toward the top of the list, especially ancient uh, philosophers. Now that's been re replaced by science or scientism. So normally we associate the scientific method with Francis Bacon, right? So what is science exactly? Austin, you should know this, you're an engineer. Hi there. You want to have a seat? There's a, uh, there's, give him some outlines. Yeah, oh, you got some over there? There you go. Okay, so what, um, what, what is science? Yeah, start, uh, science starts with a hypothesis about how some physical process works in, in chemistry, physics, biology, or whatever, right? And it, that thesis has you come up with a way of testing whether that's correct. And if it's correct, then the, you should have isolated the correct variables and, and, the, and the, you know, the, te the experimentation should be repeatable and so forth. So, like, is creation versus evolution actually a scientific question? No. It's a historical question, but the problem with the history of it is if is in, both, in both systems, the both systems are postulating that nobody was around it except God. <laughs> so he'd be the only one who could weigh in on it. Right? So if you're assuming there is no God, you're... Again, assuming facts not necessarily in evidence. Think about it. To conclude there is no God, what would you have? What kind of knowledge level would you have to have? You'd actually have to be God, right? So, I met Jonathan Garrett at the beginning of the fall semester, and if I told Jonathan Garrett at that time, I have a friend named John Bradbury, he could have said, "No, you don't. You're lying." What would he have to do to prove that I'm wrong? 
What's that? He'd have to know every person in the world and make sure that I'm not friends with someone named John Bradbury. That'd be a lot of knowledge he'd have to have, right? What would I have to do to prove I'm right? Introduce him to John Bradbury. Now, if he was skeptical, what could he do? He could say, let me see some ID. <laughs> John Bradbury, my eye. <laughs> you know, like, I've heard that stuff before, right? <laughs> And, he, and we could go to further extent to prove our case. You know, we could show a birth certificate, a driver's license, car registration, couple credit cards, two forms of ID, you know, right? And then he could actually take them to some place that specializes in counterfeiting to decide if they're real IDs and so forth. You just had this made up so you could get into bars when you were 16. Right? So scientific knowledge has to be able to be tested. So one of the, prob one of the problems is the repeatability. Another problem is biases. Another problem is faulty methodologies. Just like in logic, fallacies are fa faulty, ar faulty argumentations. For instance, there, like you'll see all sorts of fallacies if you read the book or the, the article called Love is, uh, Love is a Fallacy. But what's an abusive ad hominem fallacy? There's one, you can, you can hear several of them at 1130 at night every, and, on, what do you say, ad hominem? Yeah, ad hominem. What's an ad hominem fallacy? Did you say the answer, Kyle? No, I was just saying that. What is it? You're attacking the person rather than the argument. Oh, Donald Trump is blankety blank, right? All the comedians do that every night, right? And I would agree that he's a jerk, but I would <laughs> that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the point of view necessarily, right? So an, an ad hominem attack is actually attacking the person in their character rather than their than the argument itself. Happens all the time in argumentation. Well, you're just a liar. Yeah, you're a loser. My dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> right? Little kids do it all the time. They're having an ad hominem fight. All right, what, uh, Thomas Kuhn, has anyone, has anyone ever read The Structure of Scientific Revolutions? It's one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. Paradigms. What? What? Do you, paradigms. paradigms. Right. Okay. So, does anybody? Can anybody tell me what a paradigm shift is? Like, because you you have paradigms that you're bringing to your reading of the Bible. Or it's like, if I had a pair of glasses that had blue lenses and I saw the world blue, everything would be tinted blue. Right. Right, so if you, for instance, if you have li limited experience of the supernatural power of God, you would take that limited experience to your study of Scripture. And I, have, I know people who've been Christians for many years that have never noticed the healings or the miracles or the casting out demons of Jesus or have various ways of explaining why we don't do that now. But you'd have, you have to kind of start actually 
fudging the facts to get to get to a point of saying, well, we don't do that now. Right? Has anybody ever uh, John John Wimmer, who founded the Vineyard Movement, was actually a baby Christian. This is a, a story he tells. Or, well, he used to tell before he died. But uh, <laughs> um, and when he was a baby Christian, he was going to a church, and the and the preacher preached out of the Gospel of Mark, and he was doing a whole series out of the Gospel of Mark. So he would go up and tell the preacher after church, "Boy, I really liked what you had to say today about." Jesus proclaiming the gospel to the poor and, and binding up the brokenhearted and, and uh, you know, casting the spirits out of the gathering demoniac. And that was great. And so, and this goes, he tells him that every week for several weeks. And then finally, as a young Christian, he goes, so that was really good again today, but when are we going to start to do it? And he goes, do what? <laughs> he goes, you know, cast out spirits. Uh, proclaim the gospel to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and do the things Jesus told us to do. He goes, oh, well, we don't do them. We just talk about them. <laughs> and I'd venture to say that would actually describe 99% of churches in America today. All right, so... A paradigm is a set of assumptions that you bring, especially in science, would determine like what are consider, considered the important questions. Like, for instance, there's a paradigm uh, right now of global warming. And if you uh, don't agree with that paradigm, you're considered kind of stupid. Right? I remember in the 1970s uh, having to fight... Uh, the professor for a grade in a political science class because I didn't agree that we were heading into a new ice age. But if you didn't think we were heading into a night, new night, ice age in the 1970s, you were considered really stupid. The world's going to get colder and colder and colder and the polar ice caps are going to come down and freeze. You know, Dayton's going to be a sheet of ice. Now it's the opposite idea. 40 years can really change a lot in science, right? <laughs> what is, what's the difference between science and scientism? Scientism is the belief that scientists are always correct. Right. Scientism is a modern idea that, we, that really is very strongly established in our country, that if the majority of scientists say something's true, then it is true. There's actually been a Supreme Court cases... That have, that have found people guilty who were trying to teach uh, intelligent design or creation because the scientific community has said that's not valid anymore. Right? So I actually had a philosophy professor. This is a, an adult audience. So, uh, but he used to keep a big poster in his office and it had a pile of manure with a lot of flies on it, and the title of it said, Eat Shit, because 10,000 flies can't possibly be wrong. That's scientism. Right? There's There are so many things you can find that scientific community believes 
that are the opposite of what the scientific community believed just a few decades ago. There's, there's hundreds of examples. And I'm not against science. What I want to say about these epistemologies, epistemology deals with the subject, how do we know for sure? And all of these have their valid uses. They also have their valid limitations. Science can tell you nothing about whether they're spiritual beings or not. Right? Unless there's, you know, like Ghostbusters or something, some way to measure paranormal activities or something like this. I, I saw part of the movie once, so I get the basic idea. Um, then they have, like, equipment that's supposed to be able to tell that, you know. So what, what do I mean by the limitation of science of uniformitarianism? Does anyone know what that means? Oh, that one. All right, go ahead. Is that like the idea that just because it might work here and here, we can't prove that it works everywhere in the universe or that it's always been that way? Like, yeah, like it just because a law of science such as gravity is working now, we can't assume that it works everywhere in the universe and that it's always been the law of science. Because to assume that would be to assume that the, that the universe is a closed system that has no God. You know, uh, does anyone know, you know, everyone knows that Sir Isaac Newton was a Christian, I hope you know that, uh, wrote some great commentaries. However, he was actually non-Trinitarian, and therefore he didn't publish his commentaries so posthumously, but his commentaries other than that point are quite good. But he's kind of known for gravity, but he also uh, made several other scientific breakthroughs. What, what was the thing that he uh, made a breakthrough about the Earth's atmosphere versus the heavens? The planets revolve around the sun, not, around the, not the other way around. No, that would be Galileo. We'll talk about Galileo next. Um, no one knows? So up until Newton, actually people thought the laws of physics, like, like for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and so forth, uh, entropy, mo momentum, things like that, only were true in the Earth's atmosphere, and that once you left the Earth's atmosphere, different scientific principles would apply. Newton was the first one that said he thinks the, the principles of gravity and uh, momentum in uh, whatever you would call the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection and for every reaction there's an equal and opposite reaction and so forth. He was the first one to postulate that that continues to exist after it leaves the Earth's atmosphere. Ever, all the scientists up till then thought that, that the laws of physics changed once you entered, left the atmosphere. Does anybody know that? Look it up, it's true. So um, uniformitarianism is the idea that all present scientific laws have always been the scientific laws, but if there's a God, that's not necessarily true. And there would be no scientific way to prove that. Would there? It would be a question of history, not of science. All right, so what do we mean by he, historical or legal proof? 
Does anyone know uh, who Herodotus and Thucydides were? <laughs> They'd be old now. They weren't always old people. What? They wrote, I don't know which one did which, but one of them wrote like the first historical accounts of like. Uh, Somebody Google it. Herodotus is called the father of history. Because, of course, when the Renaissance came along, which, they, which the humanists call rebirth, and they, which was a, a movement to start overthrowing the bi biblical views of the world, they basically threw out the idea that the, that, the, that the Bible is historically inerrant and accurate. So instead of giving the proper credit to the Hebrews as being the inventors of history, they said the Greeks invented history just a mere 1,500 years after the Hebrews invented it. Right? And Herodotus was the first person who interviewed people, took their testimony, and wrote history based on other eyewitnesses' accounts. But Thucydides is often called the father of scientific history, which is a misnomer. That means it's misnamed. He should be called the first, the father of the historical critical method. What did he do differently? He examined the quality of the witnesses. He examined the quality of the witnesses. Herodotus just accepted every witness's testimony as being equally valid. Thucydides said, are they motivated by profit or the desire for fame? Is there some way of impeaching the witness? What do we do in a court of law? Like if, if, if Austin's the witness in a murder case and I'm the murderer's defense attorney and he says, oh no, yeah, I saw the guy, it was Bradbury in the study with Mr. Colonel Mustard and the lead pipe, you know? <laughs> and uh, I'd want to say, let me see those glasses, <laughs> right? Has anyone ever seen My Cousin Vinny, the movie My Cousin Vinny? What does he do? He, he destroys the witnesses' arguments by, by impeaching the witness, right? That's why, do you remember his cousin, uh, what is it, Ralph Macchio or something? Yeah, his cousin... Even when, when Cousin Vinny is having all kind of problems with the court's procedure and his attire and doesn't know all that stuff, Ralph still believes he's going to get him off because he understands he has a pension for seeing through the BS of arguments and exposing the fallacies thereof. So he's trusting that ultimately uh, you know, Cousin Vinny will get his act together about the court's protocol and everything, and, but he'll be able to dismantle the arguments because he knows he's innocent, so the arguments can't hold water. That's the whole point of the movie. It's a brilliant movie, actually. It's kind of funny, too. <laughs> um, so historical or legal proof is based on witnesses, <coughs> artifacts, and so forth. But in Proverbs, it says the first to plead, someone finish it for me, his case. Right. Seems just or right until another comes and examines another him. Another comes and examines him. 
That's where the principle of cross-examination came into Western culture. Remember when, Sol when they, the two prostitute ladies bring their babies in front of Solomon and one is rolled over and slept on the baby and you know Solomon basically impeaches the witness by saying, okay, just cut the baby in half because he knows that the real mother won't allow that to happen. First time I read that, I cried. I thought that was incredible wisdom. But it's the wisdom that's the basis of Western jurisprudence, actually, now. You know, you have to, like, you have to ask, are the, the, the witnesses motivated by something? You know, like, part, if you study Joseph Stalin's restaurant, you should read uh, Roy Medev's uh, Let History Judge. It's a, it's a first-hand account of the Stalinist era, and you won't get through it without crying and crying. But, you know, they had a whole system of torture where they, their torture got people to confess to all sorts of things just to stop being tortured, <laughs> right? You're tortured enough, you'll confess to anything, right? Okay, then finally there's re revelation or spiritual enlightenment. Okay, so would a, would a person who believes in scientism uh, be impressed when uh, Byron says that Proverbs says such and such? No, because they don't accept spiritual revelation as a source of truth, right? That's why there's hundreds of books that show the historical reliability of the resurrection of Christ. You go to great lengths to do it. You can get everything from little books to big fat books by, by amazing scholars on why the, the resurrection of Christ would stand up in a court of law. Because that's the ultimate fact of Christianity. All right, so I'll go back, flip over, or where am I trying to go to? I'm trying to talk about how the idea of authority is an inescapable idea. Does everybody get that? Do we cover that well enough? You're, you're getting that, like, you have ideas about what is ultimately the, how you're going to know something for sure. And you can use science within its limitations, Right? I'm not saying if you're an engineering major, get a, go back to school and major in theology. But there's a reason why in the, uh, that at one time there was the saying that theology is the queen of the sciences. Because to a biblical Christian, this revelation of God in Christ in Scripture is the basis of, of authority, not science. Right? Okay, so that's... Uh, so everyone, that's just kind of a little introduction to the idea of epistemology. Now, you probably know more than 99% of Wright State students now because epistem... It's amazing that at, at, at academic... In, uh, up through the 1950s, you would actually be required to take... If you went to a university... You, or a college, you'd be required to take classes in logic and logical thinking and epistemology. How do we know? But today's academia just throws facts at you, but the facts are like bricks that don't have a necessary design to them. 
They're just unrelated facts. So you get, I, I remember when I first came to Dayton, I actually attended an academic quiz bowl uh, event they were having with professors at the university. And I was surprised at how little most professors knew outside of their own academic discipline. Why? Because you can find someone that knows everything there is to know about the hind legs of grasshoppers. And he'd be called an entomologist. But he might not know anything about philosophy or metaphysics or epistemology or historical evidence. That's modern academia in a sense. It's a brick field, the brick field of unrelated facts. That's modern academia to a core. Don't let yourself through, go through college being <coughs> primarily educated by the professors. Learn to love to read on a variety of subjects. To get truly educated, you gotta read about a lot of different kind of things. So, all right, so let's go through uh, some other things. Um, let's talk about, we only got a few minutes, so let's jump down to number eight. We're gonna get into all this stuff next week on point B. What's the difference between biblical in the doctrine of biblical inerrancy and the doctrine of biblical infallibility? Or, or give me a scripture on each, even better. What's what? What's the difference? We've talked about this, so you should know. Are you, does everyone just not want to answer too often? Is that why we? Because I'm always surprised that you don't know the answer to this. Because we've covered this like maybe 20 times in the last two years. Inerrancy was like the idea that you've got to come to sell on the test. Right. And infallibility is the idea that it is impossible for you not to get 100% on the test. Very good. Now, why would it. Yeah, so inerrancy is the idea that every word of God is true. All the scriptures we read above are. are I purposely kept it to, to scriptures that have, deal with the idea of biblical inerrancy. That is, there's no mistakes in the Bible. The historical narrative is accurate. Now, can it still tell a story? Yes. But is it a, is it a mythopoeic or fictional story? No. It's a historically inerrant story, and why is that important if you're a Christian? Yeah, what, what does Paul say about the, what's the most important fact of the Christian life? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So what does Paul say about that in 1 Corinthians 15? If we only hope that Christ rose from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied, right? We should go eat, drink, and be merry. Like if, if you actually think that, you know, like the liberal Christians actually think that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and that's not even important, uh, a lot of the liberal denominations, they would actually postulate that the, the faith that Jesus rose from the dead happened to the disciples, and that's all that's important. Whether it happened or not is not important. What's wrong with that thinking? <laughs> Who said what? I said it did happen. Yeah, go further than that. The whole entire... There's parts of the Bible that Paul speaks about the importance of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection would, wouldn't mean anything then. 
Right, it would mean nothing. Christianity. So we might as well get high and party, right? Like, what? as a Christian, what are we involved in every day? One, it's called self-denial. Does everybody do everything that their sinful nature wants them to do every minute of every day? We'd all be dead if we did, right? <laughs> right? Do we all, like, we as Christians are seeking the grace to follow the Lord, right? And we're not doing so good sometimes and doing better other times, but, but we're seeking the Lord's grace to do that, right? That would be foolish, Paul is saying, if the facts... We, we believe that we are following the God who created the time-space continuum, and he has foreordained and predetermined all things that will happen in it, and he's writing his story about himself in the facts of history. That's the whole meaning of the Bible. The Bible is a book of history. The first 17 books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the New Testament are called historical books. Right? And if the Gospels aren't a true account of Jesus, then what, then what we have is nothing. Right? Does everybody see that? So that's called inerrancy. There's no mistakes in it. Now, infallibility, Bob worded it quite well. I liked how you worded it. Um, is the idea that not only did you get 100% of the answers right, but that it was inevitable that you would. It was impossible for you to get one wrong. Why, what does that mean? Draw. So let's turn to Isaiah 55. Has anybody got a verse? So say, let's start in verse 10 or so, I would imagine. I'm not there yet, so I'm just remembering it. Is that about the right place to start? Uh, let's start in verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 8. Uh, who's, re who's reading next? Byron, start in verse 8, will you? And read uh, through verse 11. All right, now let's go to 2 Peter, and we'll have uh, Bethany uh, start in verse... 2 Peter 1. Uh, verse 16, and read all the way through to chapter 2, verse 3. Think carefully, like read it slow too, loud. Think carefully on what he's saying. What's that? that gateway, uh, uh, Bible gateway. Well, I, I, we can wait if it's going to be just a minute, or is it going to take a while? Well, let's. We'll come back to you, uh, Macy. Are you got it? Okay. Start in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Read all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Not the whole chapter. 
But read the rest of chapter one on like for, remember we've talked about this a million times. The chapter breaks were added years later. In fact, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Gerhardt. Uh, what's his first name? <laughs> what? Andy. Meant in his Bible survey class uh, mentioned they weren't put in until the 14th century. I always thought they were put in about the 8th century, but I'd never looked that up. So I would assume he's more correct because he's a more scholarly on all that kind of thing. Got it? Okay, keep that translation because I want to compare it to the ESV. What translation was that? NIV. NIV. Interesting. So you tell me wherever it differs. I'm going to read the ESV. It's going to differ not substantially in meaning, but using synonyms. Uh, so this one says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Yours says stories, right? Correct? So... Remember, we've talked about in the ancient cultures, there was a thing called mythopoeic literature, mythopoeic cosmogonies. A cosmogony, cosmos is universe, genos is birth. Every culture has always had ideas about the birth of the universe. But in modern cultures, we want those to be pseudoscientific. We want to believe they're scientific. Right? The modern man mostly believes evolution is actually scientific, right? But in ancient cultures, they didn't care about that, so they didn't care. It was a myth, it was a fabricated story, but it told the ideas, right? So, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Anything different there? For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. So what, what is the occasion that we're talking about when God spoke, this is my beloved son, and when he's talking about, uh, you know, that we saw him on the holy mountain and so forth. What is the, the occasion he's talking about? Jesus water baptism. No. Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Okay, so that's what Peter's talking about here. And he's saying, this wasn't a cleverly devised story when we told you this. This was actual facts. And then he goes on to say how we'll have, uh, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, that you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in your dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So that's actually a statement about the infallibility of Scripture. That basically he's saying if you pay attention to these facts, if you read Matthew 17, if you read 2 Peter 1, if you understand 1 Peter or 1 John chapter 1, and understand all these eyewitness accounts, then the light will start to grow in your heart. It'll actually produce a work. Right? Hebrews 4:12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge between, uh, th uh, divide between soul and spirit and uh, between bone and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Now, are we able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart correctly? 
No, but the Word of God is able to do that. It's infallible. It will actually accomplish the purpose for which it's set. If we use it, it'll allow the lamp to shine that shines in a the dark place until the... If we pay attention to that lamp shining in a dark place, where's the dark place? The, the world. What's the lamp? The Word of God. If we do that, the morning star, who is Jesus will start to rise in our heart. Right? That's actually a statement about the infallibility of Scripture. That, right, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, I thank God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, is it? I thank God that when you receive from us the Word of God, you received it for what it really is, the Word of God and not of man, which is able to perform its work in you who believe. So who's the author of our faith? Who grants faith? Jesus is called the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So if Paul proclaims the gospel and faith and it starts to arise in our heart, that's because God is sending forth the word and he's producing the faith. You know, a lot of people are reluctant to do evangelism and they're afraid of man and so forth. But if you understand the infallibility of Scripture, God, God's work does not go forth without accomplishing the purpose for which it's sent. If you go and share the gospel on campus, it will do a work in people's lives. Now, probably I, I can remember the first couple times that I started being drawn by the Holy Spirit and convicted by the Holy Spirit one was at a Billy Graham crusade in 1972. I was an atheist and a, and a pothead and a drug addict, and I'm sitting there listening to this, and all of a sudden I started thinking, maybe there is a God. Maybe there's something to what this guy is saying. Because the Holy Spirit was starting to draw me to Christ. Now, the lights didn't come on like, you know, sometimes uh, they might in the morning if you have really bright lights or whatever, but... But they were starting to come on, right? I can remember a guy witnessing to me uh, a year or so later who was really on fire for Christ, and God started tugging at my heart, and I started thinking, oh, my God. Like, and I, I actually remember purposely not sitting near him ever again because I didn't want to become a Christian. We're not, we're not actually unbiased, are we? No, we're all running from God, but... The truth of the matter is the, that God is the one who makes his word perform a work. And if you get the infallibility of Scripture, you'll be way less reluctant to use the word of God among those who are lost. You know, if you have a speech class, give a speech about the, the legal evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Or what. I used to give a speech at uh, six or seven college campuses every fall on, on the historical reliability of the resurrection of Christ, and I would get plenty of good hecklers to come, and it was a lot of fun. Got to have some hecklers or it's not as fun. But, you know, I used to pay Josiah just to say, no, I'm just going <laughs> to Just stand out there and go, vanity, <laughs> foolishness, nonsense. <laughs> Get a job, Max. No, no I'm just kidding. All right, well, let's, let's end there for tonight.
Uh, who's going to say our... Daniel Williams, let's have you say our closing prayer.